Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We've gotten through this week. What an amazing week. It's still disorienting to see a president who's actually engaged with public policy, uh, news briefings where you actually have news and a functioning federal government. Um, I'm just, I'm still... I'm still trying to adjust myself to it. I'm also trying to adjust myself to a world without Donald Trump's tweets. Um, Kind of interesting. He is he as far as I can tell yesterday, Donald Trump has done something that he has not done in the last half decade, which is not say anything, which is remarkable. We're at a remarkable time. So joining us for our special weekend bulwark podcast, Bill Crystal. How are you, Bill? I'm fine, Charlie. And I'm also enjoying pretty much or feeling a sense of relief uh, what are we now 36 hours into joe biden's uh well, almost 48 hours into joe biden's america so but the last two weeks when you think about it someone pointed this out i hadn't really focused wednesday january 6th was the storming of the capitol wednesday january 13th was impeachment wednesday january 20th was inauguration so two weeks that are pretty and now we're you know in and biden's done a ton of stuff in the last two days so a pretty unusual two weeks so uh, funny, I was thinking about this yesterday because I was really tired. I was just, I was just exhausted, and I, you know, I, I did the stuff I had to do. But I was, I was thinking, you know, why am I just? I am just dragging here, and and part of it is, you know, the last three weeks have been incredibly intense. Every single moment of the last three weeks is, as you as you pointed out, you know, an insurrection, an impeachment, an inauguration, and this all takes place after we were all thinking, okay, well, that's done. Right. I mean, we can kind right. of let I mean, think about, you know, how many days we kept saying, you know, how many days until the election? And, you know, then then it'll be all but then we can exhale after the election. I had this uh, countdown journal where I tried to flag that, you know, the 78 days, I think it was 78 days between the election and the inauguration. This this could be really fraught. A lot of stuff could happen. But even so, I don't think we were prepared for how intense it was, how alarming it all was. And really at the point where people thought, okay, all right, we're done with that. We had the most intense three weeks of the entire Trump era just sort of dropped on us. So if you're feeling a little bit disoriented and exhausted, uh, there's a reason for that, isn't there? No, it's really true. I mean, November November 3rd, election day was a little close. You weren't sure. November 7th, everyone called the election. I think a lot of us thought, okay, there'll be, well, as many people said, we're quoted as saying, yeah, Trump will do some fake kind of challenges and some lawsuits and some griping and complaining and the crazier Trumpists will say it was all a a fix, but of course it'll fade away. And on December, I can't remember the date, it was the 14th, the electoral college, uh, you know, uh, uh, electors will assemble in the state capitals and it'll get done. And at each stage, uh, Trump escalated and, and he kept his supporters with him kind of astonishingly. I think we, that's something I don't even want to relive it now because it was so uh, unpleasant, really. Alarming. The degree, <laughs> alarming, yeah. The degree to which not just Trump misbehaved, but much of the party and much of the, even the conservative movement sort of, to- well, tolerated it, certainly, and some excused it, and in some cases went along with it and amplified it. And we ended up with January 6th. I mean, those two months from November 7th to January 6th, that's a real saga of a little chapter in American history that one would like to forget, but one shouldn't forget because it's there are important lessons there. And then we've had uh, impeachment on the 13th. You could have bet a lot against the second impeachment in the lame duck. And then, uh, or not the lame duck, because there's a new Congress, but in, in the lame duck presidency, I guess you'd say. And then, uh, and now Biden has come in and uh, yeah, we're, we're less, it's hard to believe, but in a weird way also, don't you think you made this point, how yeah. small Trump seems at the end? Yeah. It both seems like 
it's amazing that Biden's president, and it seems like he's been president for a month already, you know? And you know, it's funny you say that, because I actually had the same thought today. Boy, it really seems a long time. Um, and the, the, the diminishment of, of, of Trump is, is really striking. And I, I, I think uh, Matt Lewis has a column today about how extraordinary the sort of the uh, Twitterless world, uh, the Twitterless Don, Donald Trump is that, you know, that it, it just, it really had much more of an impact. And then of course the, the Biden folks started off so quickly, you know, I mean, some people may agree or disagree, but I, but I had the same impression about all of this. And I, I think maybe part of the, part of the mood is that, you know, we had been waiting to exhale for months now, and it's only in the last couple of months, but I will say this, um, uh, my newsletter today, you, you and I are actually, you know, weirdly enough on, on the, on the same wavelength there, because I'm, I'm writing my newsletter today on, on how profoundly unserious the Republican party is still after Donald Trump. And I, I want to just start off by, you had a tweet this morning, that, you know, I, that, I think nails it. Early indications on Republicans and conservatives post-Trump. No introspection, no self-examination, a decision to learn nothing from the Trump years, a reversion to conservative dogmas and Republican reflexes that were growing stale even before Trump. Yeah, that's where we're at, isn't it? I mean, I have been struck by that just in the less than 48 hours, I guess, since Biden took over. Um, maybe it's unfair, you know, look, things, everyone's in this slightly post-Trump um, moment and, and maybe two months from now we'll have the, the serious studies from the think tanks and the Republican counterproposals on the, the right way to do the stimulus and, and, and how to manage the vaccine rollout and on immigration policy and on a million other things, obviously. Uh, but for now, um, it's been depressing a little bit. And I mean, I'm not that surprised. I, I think you don't, you've made this point many times, and I think it's right. You don't make the Faustian bargain with Trump. Uh, Trump loses, leaves, and suddenly you're back to where you were. You know, something has changed. And one of the things that's changed is the party, uh, its elected officials got so out of practice, they were already getting somewhat out of practice, to be honest, uh, of, of having any kind of uh, you know, serious critique and, 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 and a mix of, let me support Biden on A, B, and G, and criticize him on modestly on C and D, but really take issue with point F, because there he's really doing something wrong. But they don't even think about politics in that way. It, it, I've been in touch with people, partly because of the impeachment in both the House and the Senate, and the degree to which the Republicans, it's all about, we've got to oppose Biden, we've got to be united, because we've got to, why, why do you have to be united? Well, we have to be united because we have to oppose Biden. Why do you have to oppose Biden on January 22nd of 2021? I mean, it's, you know, you, you can oppose him. You can oppose Democrats running for Congress in 18 months, but what does it matter? So why don't you just maybe, you know, say what you like and what you don't like in Biden's proposed uh, package on the vaccine and, and the economic uh, relief. But it, it's the, the reflex is, is not good. I mean, it's both they're scared of not being partisan enough, enough because of the Trumpy base. Uh, they just are the way they are. They've only been in a Congress, many of them, when you think about it, uh, where they've been entirely partisan, which I would say in most right, yeah. the second term of Obama and then and then uh, maybe all of Obama, but especially the second term and then with Trump. And uh, they just can't even imagine sort of having a more uh, nuanced view of their roles as, as members of Congress. No, and I think that the, so they naturally will flip back to their default position of being in, in opposition where a lot of them are comfortable. Um, 
it's it's also this this moment where you realize that a serious party would not uh, be embracing the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world or the Lauren Balberts of the world. Uh, this is a party that you know, and maybe it's because of this vacuum of actual leadership. So, do you think that they will? Speaking of which, um, do you think that they will actually purge Liz Cheney? I don't think so, but I don't trust my judgment about this Republican Party and this yeah. Republican House. I'll it's always about. worse than you. Yeah, think, but I right? think, I think, yeah, I, I think it's actually not that easy to do. They only two thirds majorities. I understand it at some point. So I think they'll they'll back off or they'll they'll fall short. And Cheney is popular. Liz Cheney is popular with many of the members, and she's quite conservative on many things. And it's not as if she was anti-Trump or anything. So until you know the until the post-November. I mean, she was in some issues, but she supported him for re-election. She supported McCarthy for leader, obviously, and, and so forth. So she's not, it's not like supporting Adam Kinzinger, you know, it's not like Adam Kinzinger's the Republican conference chair. So I, I think she'll be fine. But the degree to which, um, I was talking to someone yesterday who had been in touch with McCarthy's people, McCarthy world, Kevin McCarthy world, there is such a world, I guess. And um, who's, my person I was talking to had been pushing them to make sure they supported Cheney and to be a little more constructive. He's still kind of a Republican type who is in touch with all those people, uh, but but anti-Trump and wants to have the party move on. And the person he was talking to, very senior associate of McCarthy, said, look, you've got to understand so-and-so. Uh, you're, it's interesting to get your feedback. Kevin is getting three times as much pressure for not being pro-Trump enough right. still. than for being anti-Trump. And not just from the base. Even this is what's startling, even from some of the members of Congress, even from some donors. I mean, the degree, to, the, the depth of the uh, Trumpification of the Republican Party, I think that continues to, every time we think, well, okay, right. now we're going to move on, we get surprised. You know what? They don't really want to move on. Which is interesting because, you know, and I often amass this, like they've been offered these off ramps, rather easy off ramps from from Trump, and they're refusing to take them. I mean, here is the defeated, disgraced, twice impeached president who's off sulking in exile. And, you know, basically he's been reduced to fat Elvis in Florida. And and still they're being offered on a golden platter this opportunity to turn the page. I mean, America seems like it's ready to turn the page, but they're, they are absolutely not. I mean, it really is. It is rather dramatic that they are doubling down. Matt Gates says, you know, Donald Trump is still the leader. Did, did, did you see, did you see Ron Johnson's tweet? It's, no. Oh my goodness. I mean, he's my, my own Senator. And he's basically saying you, you can't have it both ways. You, you can't have, uh, you can't have an impeachment and, and your national security uh, staff uh, confirmed by the Senate, basically suggesting that, that if you go ahead with the impeachment, we're going to hold national security hostage. Really? I mean, really, this is that you're willing to go that far on something like that, but you know, they, yet they, they are refusing to take the off ramp right now. And again, I'm, I'm guessing that they're just banking on being able to go back to being anti-Biden. I mean, Biden, you know, has made this appeal for unity, but he is being rather progressive in his, you know, in, in, in the orders, right? I mean, his, his, his agenda is certainly, I would say, somewhat, somewhat aggressive, but also not unexpected. I mean, he's doing pretty much exactly what he said he was going to do. I mean, I guess on the offer, perhaps, you know, I guess there are plenty of instances where people don't take them when you think they might, and then they take them two months later or four months later. So I suppose we shouldn't rule out the possibility that, uh, you know, the, the power of Trump's uh, uh, intimidation and appeal 
has diminished a lot in two or four or six months and, and you get more uh, edging towards the off-ramp. But what's the phrase the economists use? I always revealed preferences. At some point, you got to tell yourself, if people keep choosing not to take the off-ramp, maybe they don't want to take the off-ramp, you know? And maybe right. we we who assume, and I'm very much guilty of this, you know, that, well, of course, they really kind of want to take the off-ramp, mm-hmm. just that it's kind of hard because they couldn't get through the traffic at this accident, but they'll do it at the next one, you know. After 36 miles more on the same highway, maybe the driver just is happy to be on that highway. And, and, and I do think there's some truth to that, actually. Lindsey Graham, who's a very good weather vane, I think, because he's such an opportunist, but not unintelligent, obviously, and has just been willing to pivot you know, amazingly in in the last five years, he has positioned himself as a defender of Trump, a loyalist to Trump. He hopes Trump remains a huge figure in the party. I'm sure he wants to run in 2024 for president. And we all laugh at it, but he thinks, and he's not totally crazy, maybe that if he can be very pro-Trump, but of course has enough of a background that's slightly different that he doesn't look quite like Hawley and Cruz and he didn't support overturning the election. And he has a slight tinge of on a few issues still being you know, reasonable, you know, from the old days. I mean, maybe he thinks that's kind of where to be in the party. But it's interesting that he thinks, Ron Johnson is more idiosyncratic, I think, and just, you know, gets annoyed at a lot of people and whatever. But Lindsay, um, it's interesting that he thinks that it's wise for him, having just been reelected, so he's not yeah, on the gun, um, you know, it's, that he thinks it's wise for him to remain pretty pro-Trump or pretty pro yeah, pro-Trump in some abstract or general way. So I noticed he's been going on TV a lot the last 24, 36 hours to, just to make this point. He hasn't have anything else much to say. Um, so it is pretty, it is pretty astonishing. It is pretty astonishing. Yeah, boy, Lindsey, Lindsey Graham. I, I suppose there's, there's a lesson here that, that once you completely sacrifice any self-respect, it's kind of hard to, you know, turn the switch back on. Sort of like if you, uh, you know, self-amputate certain parts of your body, you just can't simply reattach them. Okay, so let's talk about uh, what's going on in the Senate right now and, and the impeachment. Because, um, and, and I wonder how you feel about this, uh, the, the delay of impeachment. My gut sense tells me that the longer uh, the trial is delayed, even though the evidence is piling up, uh, the less likely there is to be a conviction because you're, you're moving away from the urgency, the, the normal human instinct to say, can we just let it go? Can we just not do this again is going to kick in. And you're sort of seeing that mood now among among Republicans. Uh, what do you what, what do you what are you sensing and feeling there? I, I think there's there's a fair amount of truth to that. On the other hand, what McConnell seems to be proposing isn't that much of a delay, to be honest. They do need to let the Trump right. managers respond to the House report, yeah. and they're talking about getting the initial House report. I think that in a week, and then give the Trump people a week, and then a couple more days for the House, and then mid February go to the floor with impeachment. So I, I, I think that's reasonable, honestly. And I, I don't know which way it cuts that on the one hand, more evidence can accumulate uh, and senators can uh, think a little bit more about the future of the party maybe, and not be in just, you know, reaction mode, which can cut either way. They're, they're less angry about what happened on January 6th. They're less startled, but on the other hand, maybe they can sort of calmly think, gee, let's just think going ahead what we want. So I, I think I've talked to a couple of people on the Hill about this. I think that one can be go, Either way, one of the one phenomenon, and we've we've touched on this, but we haven't discussed it explicitly. That people might look for, I think, in the next few weeks and months, um, is something reoccurring or, or appearing again that used to be a commonplace of American politics and has sort of disappeared in the last 10, 15 years. Which is, I think, the Senate could look very different from the House, and I, particularly in the Republican Party. That is, 
it is very, we've sort of glossed over this, all of us, but on the night of January 6th, the House Republicans voted, I think, 65%, basically, to overturn the electors, really amazing. Correct. But in the Senate, I think they got six or seven or eight votes out of 50 to overturn the electors. So the kind of opposite for percentage almost. Um, and I do have the feeling that just talking to some people that the Republican senators, I mean, they are in for six years and some of them aren't running for re-election. So the, the, the number who are up in competitive seats in 2022 is pretty small, actually. They're much less under the gun. They do think of themselves a little differently from House members. They tend to have been there longer. And so they're a little less products of the Trump era. Fewer of them are. Um, and so they have a little more self kind of uh, pride in their in their stats standing. It didn't show up much in the Trump years, but uh, some of us hoped it would and it didn't. But I, th- I think that could be an interesting phenomenon. I think we'll see that on impeachment, whether they get how what you know how many votes they get. But maybe on some of these other issues as well. I mean, whether and McConnell, I think, for all that he's an extremely tough partisan fighter, I think he has a sort of different image of himself than Kevin McCarthy does of his. Now, McCarthy, of his, of his own role. And I, McConnell, I think, is particularly interesting. He's, what is he, 78, maybe? Mm-hmm. He just won. Is he brilliant? He's in his last term. Um, he's now minority leader, which he's not happy about. You could say, well, he's just going to do everything he can to be majority leader for his final two or four years, <coughs> excuse me, yeah. which implies presumably a fairly partisan attempt to, to damage the Biden administration. He also has got to be thinking a little bit, how am I going to go down on the history books? He's been a very impressive, I've always admired it, but a very impressive leader of the party and got the judges through and jammed through Amy Cody Barrett when people said it couldn't be done and and so forth, held the party together on impeachment and the first impeachment and a lot of things. But doesn't he have a sense, too, that he doesn't want to simply go down as one of the most effective partisan leaders, but a little bit of a touch of statesmanship and not just praise from you know, total conservative uh, organs, but from a you know kind of mainstream, you might say, media and historians. One way to do that, obviously, is to say, look, January 6th was a bridge too far. We need to be clear about this. That was unacceptable. And to be for impeachment, I, 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 for conviction. I really, I think McConnell's, the psychology, and a lot depends on McConnell. I think if McConnell goes for conviction, he can probably get them to 67. If he doesn't, I think it's it's impossible. So um, I think the whole question of McConnell's almost image of himself and and how much he's susceptible to the sense that maybe, and I don't mean this in a very, in a, it sounds more, you know, calculating, but it's a lot of this is just kind of implicit, you know, psychology almost. Does he sort of think that, you know what, I, I should also be the, the, the leader of the party who I went along with Trump, we got some good things done, I'll still defend that, blah, blah, blah. But I also, you know, I'm also the person who helped get us beyond Trump. I would like to think that that's what he's thinking, um, but it requires him to uh, really poke the hornet's nest. And so I, I guess I'm, I am, I am not, not quite as hopeful. I mean, I want to, because I think, I I think it is absolutely crucial that, uh, that they make, that they vote uh, to make it clear that no president of the United States should be able to do this. Um, And I know I can see that a lot of these Republicans are trying to stake out kind of the, the middle ground where they're not actually defending the president in any way, but they're just saying, okay, um, he's no longer the president. He's out of office. Um, You know, you know, latching on to that Dershowitz argument that that you cannot go ahead with a trial of somebody who's out. I, I think that's a bogus argument. You saw this letter with 150 constitutional law scholars, including one of the founders of the Federalist Society, writing, look, um, it's very clear that the Constitution permits the impeachment, conviction and disqualification of former officers, including presidents. But 
I, you can get the sense that they are grasping on grasping this, uh, you know, that maybe they can they can they can avoid making a statement. But if Trump is once again acquitted, you know that he will draw another lesson from this. This is this is not a no risk, no consequence vote. If, in fact, um, they vote to acquit him after all of the evidence of the way that he lied and he stoked the fire and and it didn't cite what's what's going on. You saw, by the way, though, that Kevin McCarthy is already walking back his denunciation of the president's behavior. I thought that was very revealing, yes, and very depressing if you had any hopes of uh, the House Republicans doing anything constructive. I think the best case on the House side, yeah, but so that was on the floor of the House. I think as he was making the case not to convict Trump, not to impeach Trump, right. he felt he had to kind of show that he was concerned. And so he had that a couple of sentences about how it was unacceptable. I can't remember exactly what he said. And and he seems now to just be contradicting himself and saying that Trump didn't incite uh, anything. And, and presumably Trump, there's no problem with just sitting around the White House for a couple of hours while Incidentally, Kevin McCarthy himself, I believe, or certainly his most senior staff, called the White House and called the president, you know, for the president. I don't, know if the, I don't think the president took the call, but talked to very senior staff at the White House and said, we are under attack. You've got to call them off and also mobilize the government to do something. And Trump ignored them. But So the degree of abasement, self-abasement of McCarthy and really of the House Republicans in general, I hope Liz Cheney stays in her job and she's been better. But even so, the best we're going to get is a sort of tolerance of Liz Cheney Republicanism, the dominance of Kevin McCarthy Republicanism in the House. I'm hopeful, little hopeful, that the Senate will be different, as I just said. But I, I mean, I agree with you to be, it's the wisest thing would be to skepti- be skeptical there too. And then what does it look like? I and mean, what does it look like if you have a Republican party that, uh, you know, doesn't seem to have uh, be trying to help Biden succeed in the midst of a pandemic and a recession and a million other challenges? They don't have to, every, there's plenty of time to, and plenty of things to oppose them on, obviously. Um, I was a little heartened by the, was it, I think, an 85 to 10 or something vote to confirm the new Mm -hmm. director of national intelligence, um, because that was, you know, struck me, okay, they're not all voting in some knee-jerk way against every nominee of of Biden. And I think you might see a similar vote for Blinken, for Secretary of State and and the like. So maybe this, again, is the Senate. That's where I'm taking a tiny bit of hope that the senators will think of their role as being a little bit different from the... House Republicans, but let's not kid ourselves. The House Republicans are probably are more in touch with the grassroots right. than the Senate Republicans. They're supposed to be more in touch. That's why the Senate's you know, set up differently than the House. And uh, so, I yeah, it, it all makes me sort of pessimistic about the Republican Party for the next yeah. couple well, of years. I mean, Kevin Kevin McCarthy's statement yesterday just reminds us, you know, that that he's an unserious leader of an unserious party right now. Uh, so let's talk about try to unpack some of this rhetoric about unity, the, you know, uh, uh, Joe Biden, the president, it's, I'm, I'm still getting used to calling him president Biden, president right. Biden. Um, in, in, and I, I thought in a significantly above average inaugural address, you know, made this plea for turning the page, moving ahead, use the word unity, um, many, many times. And of course that now you've got a lot of people on the right saying, well, wait, 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 you know, how, how can you have unity while still going ahead with an impeachment as if somehow you can walk into the house, burn it down, loot it, and then stand outside and saying, hey, can we all get along now? Can we let bygones be bygones now? The, 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 the argument, which, which you can see throughout the conservative media, that, well, he's not really pushing unity because he's doing things we disagree with, and we're still going after Donald Trump. Well, look, you need to have a reckoning. 
you're not going to have, and, and this is where your tweet, I think is important is there's no introspection. You're not going to have unity until you have people responsible for the division step back and go, okay, that was a mistake. We went too far. We, we were wrong. We apologize for trying to overturn the election. We apologize for our role in spreading disinformation, in undermining the legitimacy of this election. And until they do that, um, it's, it's, it's hard for me to imagine how we're going to you know, have any sort of unity or ability to actually deal with the, with the country's problems. And it's a little much of people who supported Trump for re-election after everything we'd seen and then supported him during November and December and into January. Um, and then in the case of the House Republicans, uh, almost two thirds of whom voted to overturn uh, the electors from Arizona and Pennsylvania, um, they're the ones who are now telling us that, you know, telling us that 48 hours of the Biden administration and some pretty routine executive orders and doing what he said he would do, frankly, in a bunch of areas. Mm -hmm. Um, that that's sort of just too much as if, as if they were going to give, as if they were going to be interested in unity at all. Is there a single person who's, I think there's an honest, I mean, there are people who might have supported Biden like us, uh, who would say, gee, I think the following things you've done are very good. Some of the speeches and some of the, the moves, some of the gestures, I think these are fine. You know, it's, you're entitled to reasonable. I think these one or two may be unnecessary and unwise. That's totally legitimate. And, and, and maybe it's more than one or two incidentally. And that's the kind of, Criticism, and incidentally, I'm not. I wouldn't if I were a Republican senator vote for everything Biden's about to submit, or uh, you know. But but that's a very different attitude from never supporting him, attacking him viciously during the campaign, uh, not accepting him as a legitimate president on November seventh or on December sixth or whatever, um, and then suddenly getting all high and mighty about, oh my God, he actually wants to pursue the immigration policy he said he was going to pursue, and he's going to submit legislation that he said he was going to submit to legalize the 11 million immigrants who are here. I mean, they, people are entitled to oppose that as a policy. Sure. But that's not a sort of violation of unity. And I think his rhetoric, I've got to say, it has, so far as one can tell, the, the senior people he's appointed and his press secretary, Jen Psaki, whom I know some, I mean, they, they've been pretty good in the sense of not, Jen Psaki does not sound like Kaylee McEnany, right? I don't oh, think she no, does. Absolutely not, does she no. even use the word Democrat and Republican up there from the podium? I think she's just been talking about what Biden wants to do. I, I thought it was funny that they were that there were some people, including Sean Spicer, who said, "Well, she's being treated very differently than Sean Spicer." Well, yeah, because she's not up there ranting and raving and giving alternative facts. <laughs> she's, I mean, yes, there's yeah. going to be a little bit of there's going to be a bit of a there's going to be a bit of a of a difference here, isn't there? Oh, between the, between yeah. these between these 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 administrations. Well, so this is the the, the point you're making, though, is that. Republicans are not on, you know, on an obligation to vote for things they disagree with. There's no, you know, obligation for conservative Republicans to vote for massive new spending plans. There's no obligation for them to vote for, say, a fifteen dollar minimum wage. But it would be nice to have a good faith discussion. And I think the question is, do you have good faith opposition where you you listen to the arguments, you propose alternatives, and then you have a vote on it? versus the kind of complete obstructionism and oppositionalism that has really become the norm. And you think about it, we really haven't had good faith bipartisan legislation for the last 12 years. I mean, going back to 2009, uh, we really haven't had that. And maybe it's naive to think that you're going to have it now. 
Yeah, I guess the one exception would be the 2013 immigration package, which did pass the Senate in a bipartisan way and problems. And I was, I now regret it, but I was, I was very skeptical of it at the time. I think it would have been better for the country if it had passed, probably. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, you're right, though. No, look, we've become so reflexively partisan. The minimum wage is a good example. I, it is a little ridiculous, I think, to raise nationally the minimum wage to fifteen dollars at a time when a ton of small businesses, especially like restaurants, for example, have gone out of or, or at risk of going out of business. And for them, the the difference between paying nine or ten bucks an hour and fifteen bucks an hour is not nothing, you know. And that's a serious thing. I think huge corporations can probably tolerate the way the, mm-hmm. the hike, and a lot of them already pay fifteen dollars an hour. And so it's not a you know as a policy matter, it's not quite as much of a slam dunk as free market as some of our free market friends want to say. But I think it's a very respectable case to say no, no, no. Let's raise it. Fine. Let's raise the minimum wage a dollar or something like that. It hasn't been raised in ten years, but. Let's and maybe if you want, let's build in some increases in the out years. But let's not go to fifteen dollars overnight when we have high unemployment in those service areas that are, I think, very uh, uh, sensitive to, to to wages. Well, uh, um, yeah. but that would be a, and, and and you could say, and I, we want a chance to have a vote on this on the floor of the Senate. Mm-hmm. We'd like to amend the bill. We don't want to, you know, we're not going to take down the entire uh, stimulus package, obviously, on the minimum wage. But I say obviously, maybe they would, but. But again, that's not been the tone of m- most of the criticism by senators. And I would say this is what's even more depressing. It hasn't been the tone of much of the criticism by the conservative uh, elite uh, newspapers and magazines. You know, that would have been, I think, 15 years ago, what the intelligent editorials would have been uh, in the Weekly Standard, frankly, mm-hmm. but in the in National Review and the Wall Street Journal, that these things seem reasonable. This thing is too much. Let's let's have a better income test for the uh, for the fourteen hundred dollars per person. Doesn't have to go to people you know with family income of one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year or whatever it would be, and and let's get rid of the minimum wage increase. And but that's not been the tone of most of the writing that I've seen. I haven't looked at everything, obviously. Uh, I'm sure there are thoughtful papers at AEI that say what I've just said and say it better. But but the tone has just been oh here they are again the big spending Democrats. You know it's just so silly, really. Well, the, the big spending Democrats and what I think is going to be interesting will be the number of Republicans that endorsed the $2,000 per person check when Trump endorsed it, but will now regard it as socialism. Right. I mean, and, and, and this will be literally, and you know that there are people like Lindsey Graham who, who, I mean, that who have, have just, you know, internalized the shamelessness that it doesn't matter what they said before. And they know they were really never held accountable for it. So that's going to be interesting. So you made a point before though, that one of the big wild cards here is the fact that we are facing a, a genuine national disaster. And I wonder whether that does change the political dynamic, that there may be that reflex to oppose everything that Biden does, except the fact that we have 4,000 Americans who are dying uh, every day. And you have millions of Americans that are really watching the vaccine very, very closely because they understand that that's their future. I mean, that, that's a life and death issue, but it's also, you know, whether they're going to be able to go back to work or they're going to keep their jobs, all of those things. So there's a big reality check out there. There's something else that I keep thinking about, and I mentioned it on our live stream the other night. I keep thinking back to 2009. Barack Obama comes in with a great good feeling, much, 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 uh, you know, in a, a, a much more robust honeymoon, or at least it felt like it than, than Joe Biden is getting right now. But very, very quickly, you had the, the Tea Party movement arise. 
which initially was, I think, a, a, a grassroots movement. I think it morphed into something much different. I think it was taken over by the grifters um, and became something, you know, totally different than it was in the beginning. So you could certainly imagine a large scale conservative uprising, uprising and as in protests, marches and everything uh, against the Biden agenda. But I'm wondering whether they're the right is capable of doing that without it being crazified. Do you know what I mean? Give, yeah. Given what we saw on January 6th, given the the nature of of, of Trump world, you know, the, and I know some of our listeners will completely disagree with me, but in the beginning, the Tea Party seemed very normal. I don't know that the right is capable of having a normal-looking protest any anymore. And I think January 6th really put kind of, the, you know, put the nail in that one. Yeah, and I mean, I think what you mentioned just in passing earlier really makes a difference. Is our Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert, mm-hmm. how you pronounce her name, mm-hmm. uh, members in good standing of the House Republican Conference? Are they yeah, they are. On serious committees? Are, are they not? Are they going to be eligible for NRCC, the Congressional Committee's support and funding and so forth? I mean, that's that, then you have a party that's sort of no no conspiracy theorist has gone too far. Nothing is that nothing. We, we were no enemies to the right. No 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 distinctions between uh, you know even hardline very you know conservative conservatives on the one hand and kooks on the other. And you're right. Once that happens, then the kooks tend to take over. And there's a kind of Gresham's law of, of politics. It's why it was so important for Buckley and others and to say no birchers. I mean, it wasn't that they weren't, it wasn't the conservatives back in the late, mid, late 60s weren't very, very, very conservative on a lot of issues and probably correctly, mm-hmm. maybe on some and incorrectly on others. But but you still can't let it be polluted by, let your movement be polluted by by, by by kooks and I do yeah so I and I and now you could say the Tea Party became kind of kooky and I think that's but I think it became kookier actually by 2011 with the birther stuff and some of that but I think the originally was kind of a you know geez that we're spending money foolishly the Democrats had a huge majority of that also and and you know there's blame I think on both sides in terms of everything becoming partisan very quickly in the Obama years I. I I'm not going to uh, whitewash the kind of uh, Republican responsibility, but uh, I think President Obama and Rahm Emanuel just saw we can get stuff through with only Democratic votes, and we're going to do that. They can do that a li- maybe this time, but it's very, very tight with 50 Democrats in the Senate, yeah. you know, what a five-vote margin in the House. So I'm not so sure. But just on the uh, on the point about the the nature of the opposition, I very much I think you 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 hint at, but uh, just develop your point a little bit about. The vaccine, I mean, and the pandemic, that's the key thing, obviously. Yeah, everything. Biden's going all in on on that he's going to, as fast as possible, deal with it. He's going to use the Defense Production Act. He's committing to, you know, he's just, that's that's priority number one. Uh, it seems to me the intelligent response by McConnell or McCarthy or whoever the relevant chairman are of committees, if that matters anymore, is to say, look, we, we totally agree on the on the vaccine. We want to do everything we can to help this administration get this to as many Americans as possible. But uh, Mr. President, you're cluttering up the vaccine thing with some of these other proposals you have. Let's just separate that out. Let's just do the coronavirus stuff in one piece of legislation. We'll do it next week because we need to get that going. We need to make sure there are no obstacles. And you come to us if there's a regulatory problem or something in law that's slowing you down. We'll remove it the next day. And let's have, let's debate some of these other questions of the minimum wage and immigration policy and even some parts of economic policy, uh, you know, in, in the weeks and months to come. That would seem to me to be an intelligent response. I, I sort of agree with you. There's a political risk of looking like the party yeah. that is not interested 
in getting the vaccines into Amer- as many Americans' arms as possible, as quickly as possible. Is that really where the Republican Party wants to look? That is sort of Herbert Hoover. I mean, whether it's a fair description of Hoover, I think it probably is, but or not. I mean, isn't that, didn't Republicans pay a pretty big price for looking like the party that didn't really want to help people get employment, you know, in the high, at the, the depths of the depression? And I do feel that this is something where they're just thinking, they're not thinking this through. I mean, they were part of a, administration, they supported an administration that was utterly inept, is the kindest way to put it, I think, that bungled the response to the pandemic. And now this is a moment for them to sort of separate themselves from that and say, you know what, aggressive response to the pandemic, great, we're totally on board. And, and incidentally, we want to, we would like to do it even faster than Biden's doing it, you know. And instead, they're, they're looking like the Trump administration out of power now. Um, and I think that that could be disastrous, and it, particularly as as the death toll continues to rise. I, I think it was uh, was Biden who said yesterday was it yesterday. I've lost track of time now. My my right. whole time the whole time space continuum has has, has been broken. But he said uh, we're going to be at five hundred thousand deaths in a month. Uh, so do they really want to be the oppositional party when it comes to this? You know, I, we, we've become obsessed talking about, well, you know, uh, 36% of the country, 40% of the country will believe anything. 40% of the country will go along with uh, the opposition to any of these things. I mean, you know, how many times have we said that? But um, I, I think we also ought to like step back and go, okay, well, wait. Um, that means that 60% of the country is looking at this going, this is wrong. You guys are crazy. We are not buying into all of this. And so... You know, as 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 often as you have the Trump world, people say, well, you know, 70, you have to respect 74 million Americans. Yes. Um, every single time we need to remind them there were 81 million that voted for something different. And and if you have more hundreds of thousands of Americans that die, that would be a political disaster for the Republican Party. And and, and because there is a moment at which, um, you know, there are people who are not engaged in politics who are looking at this and going, what the hell? What the hell are you talking about? I also think there's a danger for um, allowing the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the and the Lauren Bobbitts and stuff to become kind of the quasi face of, of the Republican Party in the way that AOC became for a while the face of the, of the Democratic Party. That, I think, did not help the Democrats and much of the country. Um, and, and yet AOC is, <laughs> let me just say this as careful as I can. I mean, a- AOC is so we say un, un, unpopular, politically toxic in a rather traditional way. She's just to the left. Marjorie Taylor Greene, I mean, is woolly in terms of the conspiracy theories. I mean, I just I mean, not to put a too fine a point on it, forget just QAnon. I mean, this this is a person who has said that, you know, these school shootings uh, were false flags. Uh, she said that the Parkland and the Sandy Hook shootings were staged. I mean, really, I mean, this is this is far out there. So a, a political party that was able to say, hey, Steve King shouldn't have any committee chairman, you know, because he's a white supremacist, a white nationalist. And, and they and they, they essentially purged him. But that same party is going, yeah, we're we're OK with Marjorie Taylor Greene. Yeah, we're OK with a complete truther. How long is that going to last? How long yeah. is that sustainable? And you do pay. I think American politics has pretty uh, reliably been the case. You pay a price for your for tolerating, seeming to tolerate, or seeming to have fostered extremes that you don't very firmly repudiate. I mean, Pelosi 
I remember early 2019 and, you know, uh, conservatives were making great hay. I uh, uh, thought they were uh, out of AOC and that's the new, and, and it did, I remember donors telling us, telling me when I was trying to get them to be interested in the alternative to Trump for the Republican nomination in 2020, or at least to fund a challenger, even if it was only going to be symbolic. Oh no, we can't even think of it because we, the Democrats have gone so far left because of AOC. Well, to their credit, I mean, the Democrats did a couple of things. Pelosi did marginalize AOC. The truth Very much so. Yeah. The, 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 the Green New Deal did not become a major Democratic legislative initiative, even though they controlled the House in 2019, 2020. It never even got anywhere. Uh, and then, of course, they nominated Biden, which sort of took care of that problem as much as people were willing to, unless people just were using it as a talking point and didn't, weren't being serious. Uh, we'll, the Republicans don't have that. All, we'll see who they nominate in 2024, but for the next two years, they don't really have that alternative. And there'll be a bunch of primaries in 2022. And again, now if McCarthy and McConnell and the donor class and everyone mobilized to make sure an awful lot of uh, Mike Gallagher's get nominated and very few uh, uh, Lauren Boebert's get nominated, they'll, the party will be better off. But I don't necessarily see that happening. And I don't know that they can do that, given the, the nature of the base. The other point, just on your first point, which I think is very interesting about the 60, was it the 74 million and the 81 million? And all this, I mean, it's silly to even look at polls, I suppose, now, you know, so far, the next election so far away. But a, a couple of polls, a couple of surveys have shown something like 20%, maybe 15% of Trump voters unhappy with Trump's behavior in the last two and a half months, not more than unhappy, really opposed to it and think it was a, a real problem. Now, in a way for, for you and me, you think, oh my God, so now we're down, now we're down from 74 million to, let me do the math in my head, 60 million, you know, Republican uh, Americans who are still supporting stuff that you can't quite believe they're yeah. supporting. But it's a pretty big difference. And and those that is the group of people who are, you know, open to blandishment to decide that, you know, maybe this, maybe the Democrats aren't as crazy as I thought. And Biden seems to be doing some things right. And it's not quite where I am on a lot of issues, but I don't know. That's where you do get the potential for, you know, what didn't happen in 2020, which is a real democratic wave, a mini realignment. There aren't a t I mean, everything's so polarized that you don't have the kinds of swing voters you had in the in the Reagan years where you can a party can go, you know, can pick up 10 percent in one election cycle. Uh, Reagan went from what, basically 50 to 60 almost in four years. But a, a somewhat successful Biden administration, I think, could pick up those some of those Trump voters. So I, I think people are being a little too on the Republican side almost. They can't assume that all 70, they keep speaking for those 74. Right. You're disrespecting 74 million. They can't assume those 74 million, some chunk of those 74 million, uh, to get back to your other point, are not happy that Marjorie Taylor Greene is the face of the party no. and or sort of the, could be the face of the party or hasn't even been repudiated by the party. And, you know, so I, I think that's really an interesting thing to, to watch going going forward. As well, well. It, it is. And just do the math on this. If, if 20 percent of the Trump voters are unhappy with his performance, that's 14 million Americans. This right. is a large group of Americans. You, you, you take away 10 percent of his vote and the Electoral College looks very, very different. OK, so one, one last thing. Um, it, it does appear that Mitch McConnell is playing hardball on the issue of the filibuster. I'm, I'm a little puzzled by all of this because. My sense is that the Democrats don't have the votes anyway to eliminate the filibuster. Uh, Joe Manchin has said that he's not going to go into it. But but a lot of the progressives are saying, look, um, you have to abolish the filibuster. You're not going to get progressive legislation through. Mitch McConnell is not even apparently allowing the normally routine vote to organize the Senate unless 
uh, Chuck Schumer commits to not trying to abolish the filibuster. Uh, what's what's going on? I mean, again, another indication of, of what a tough uh, negotiator Mitch McConnell is and maybe a pretty good poker player. Yeah, he is that. I mean, so I talked to two Democrats yesterday. I'll just okay. I asked the exact question you just asked me since I'm a little puzzled by it. Mm-hmm. And one said, look, that's just McConnell. He'll take everything he can get. And he really wants to make sure the filibuster is there. And it's harder for Schubert to, to, to end it, try to end it. If if Republicans do filibuster a lot of things that even you know Joe Manchin and, and Kirsten Sinema care about, uh, it's harder for him to end it if it's sort of in writing that he's not going to end it. So on the one hand, they're taking it as McConnell just being an incredibly tough negotiator, getting what he can, uh, not doing the routine thing of letting the Senate be reorganized. Um, Another Democrat then, you know, literally an hour later, uh, said, uh, I don't know, I, the, the hopeful version of this, she thought, was that McConnell is looking tough on this and will pro- you know, can get some oral kind of concession from Schumer that he doesn't intend to do anything about the filibuster for now, at least. Uh, and that that's his way of looking like a, you know, that he's fighting hard before perhaps he votes to convict on impeachment. So you can interpret it as a kind of... Uh, placating the base or as him really being a tough guy, or I guess some combination uh, of the two. I I really do think the more you think about the next months, at least, maybe not years, um, McConnell is just a very important figure, right? I mean, it really, a lot, I do think he would have a lot of, he wouldn't bring every Republican senator with him on decisions, but if he, and he's so far been a kind of mix of pretty, you know, sounding kind of bipartisan. It's happy to be happy to have a new day. Then he took a couple of shots at Biden yesterday for being too liberal. But I don't know the where McConnell ends up in this balancing act of uh, being a tough opponent of Biden and being a constructive critic and even at times a supporter of the Biden administration. That's probably the most important inside baseball, you know, uh, question to be resolved over the next several months. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Bill Crystal, thank you for joining me on the podcast that I appreciate it very, very much. I very much enjoyed it. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back on Monday in a very different world. We'll do this all over again.